In chapter 20, if you'll remember back, we saw the, the final battle and defeat of Satan. We also saw there the destruction of our last enemy, and that enemy being death. And we also saw the final individual judgment there of all humanity. All who have ever lived will stand before the judge of the universe one day. After those things, in chapter 21, particularly in verses 1 through 8 that we looked at last week, we saw the complete renewal of creation. We saw a new heaven and a new earth because the, the former heaven and earth had passed away. We saw a new heaven and a new earth, a place where sin and suffering and death are no more. We saw the place where God will dwell with His people. The people who He has redeemed out of all the nations through His atoning death on the cross. And today, as we continue to chapter 21, in verses 9 through 27, uh, after describing the new creation, the passing away of the old and the bringing of the new, after describing the new creation, the bride herself is introduced in verse 9. And it goes all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, which next week we'll do verses 1 through 5 of 22. In the first three verses of the text we're looking at today, we see the people of God introduced. And they're introduced figuratively as a great city. And then, in the remainder of the chapter, into chapter 22, we'll see the city's design, and we'll see the measurements. You heard as Richard read that passage, the measurements. We'll see its materials, all those jewels in the foundation. And we'll see its contents. Here's what I want you to hear. Each of these teaches us something figuratively about what eternity will be like for God's people. Let me say that again. Each of these things teaches us something figuratively. In other words, these things are figurative and they're they're used to tell us about how glorious our eternal home will be one day. There is an effect that this passage should have upon us, professing Christians. There's an effect this passage, and the one we talked about last week, should have on us. It's the same effect that the entire book of Revelation is designed to have upon the believer. And that effect is that of fueling our desire for the return of Jesus. The whole book does that. Jesus is coming. He wins. You win, church. But... In particular, in chapter 21, through what we're going through today, there's this focus, there's this effect that should have on us of fueling our desire for the return of Jesus. The future that awaits the church at the return of Jesus, the future is the fuel for living faithful lives here and now. Let me say that again. The future is the fuel for living faithful lives here and now. You need motivation to live faithfully for God? Look toward eternity. That should fuel and motivate us. It should give us an endurance. It should encourage us now when we face hard times. Just for a show of hands. How many here have difficult times? This is fuel for those times. It should remind us how much better eternal life with God is than any thing sin can promise us. The next time sin promises you something, you think about where I'm headed and what that looks like for me today as we look at this passage. 
And it should motivate us to share the gospel with those who are lost. That's my prayer for me. That has been this whole week. And that's my prayer for you today as you hear the Word of God. So if you're looking at your handout, uh, here's the main idea. God's people, the nations, will dwell safely and enjoy perfect fellowship with God for all eternity. We'll enjoy perfect fellowship in God's presence for all eternity. So if you're looking here, verses 9 through 14, we've lined it this way. The pure bride, the wife of the Lamb. And He introduces us to this city in verses 9, 10, and 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, listen carefully, saying, Come... I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So what's the angel calling John to come see? The bride. The church. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, the language here in verse 9 and 10, this is significant. The language here in verses 9 and 10 matches the language that we saw in chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Which showed us, does anybody remember? The great prostitute. The language in chapter 17 is a figurative statement for the world as a prostitute. You remember we talked about that? That was a figurative statement for the world. And it was referring to her as a prostitute. Why? Because she seduces the 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 world and pulls people away from God. The language of chapter 17 is a figurative statement for the world as a prostitute. The language is intended to show the power of worldly seduction by characterizing it as a wicked, disgraceful prostitute who uses her sinful pleasure to lead many away from God into idolatry. Does everybody remember that? The prostitute, the whore, was a, a figurative for the world pulling people away. And the language of both passages there and what we're looking at today is intended to help us learn from the contrast between the harlot's outcome and the bride's glory. See, chapter 17 told us, as we saw, introduced this, and as we continue on, here's the outcome for this particular uh, lady. Well, I wouldn't use lady referring to a prostitute. Uh, that's too kind. But woman, the language of both passages intend to help us learn from the contrast between the harlot's outcome and the bride's glory. In chapter 17, the angel, listen, he invites John, listen to this, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Does that sound kind of similar to what we just heard? Here in chapter 21, verse 9, the angel invites John saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And just as the angel carried John away in the Spirit and showed him the harlot in chapter 17, verse 3, he did the same thing. So in verse 10, John writes, And he carried me away in the Spirit. You see the, the similarities there? Back in chapter 17, verse 3, the angel carried John into the wilderness where he saw the, the prostitute and the, the blasphemous beast. Now, notice here in our passage, the angel carries John, notice where he carries John, to a great high mountain and showed him 
the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Unlike Babylon's now worthless gold and jewels, chapter 17, verse 4, and her wasted luxury, chapter 18, verse 7, there's a difference here. There's a contrasting in these two. I think it's important to stop here and make a significant point. Probably the most single important thing you need to understand in this passage is the symbolism of the holy city, Jerusalem. That's what the focus will be on for the rest of this chapter into chapter 22, the first five verses. The city, the new Jerusalem, is symbolic for the people of God. The city is the bride. The two are the same. Both indicate the church of God. It is a place and a people. This this city is symbolic for the people of God who will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth. Here's, Here's why I would say that. Look at verse 9. The angel says what? Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You're going, okay, if I'm John, I'm going to go with the angel, and what is he going to show me? The bride, the wife of the Lamb. Which as we learned back in chapter 19, refers to who? God's people. Also notice after saying, I will show you the bride, the angel then proceeds to show John. What is it that he shows John? Verse 10. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me what? The holy city, Jerusalem. The angel said he would show John the bride and he showed him a what? City instead. Some view this as a literal description of the new city. Others, which I put myself in that count, understand it as being symbolic. The bride and the city are both figurative. They are symbols for the same thing, the people of God. So it is a people and a place. John is getting to see both of those. John's going to show you figuratively, church, where you're going to be dwelling and what it's going to be like. So that means that the purpose of our text isn't to give us a literal description of the eternal dwelling place, but rather a figurative description of ourselves and what life will be like for us in God's presence for all eternity. John's going to use figurative language given to him by the Holy Spirit of God to show us what it's like to dwell in this new eternal heaven in God's presence for all eternity. See in verse 10 how the saints are described. Just as we saw in verse 2 last week. They referred to as what? The holy city. The purpose of the new heaven and new earth is fellowship with God and, and, and with His people, meaning that it's, again, third time, it's a place and a people that we're seeing here. We're seeing the place, the new heavens and the new earth, but the focus is on the church and how we are dwelling with God and what that is going to look like for us. You know, I have people ask all the time, and I'm sure you've asked this, and people ask you, what do you think it's going to be like in heaven? They're like, most of us go, it's got to be better than what it is now. Well, yeah, duh. I sure hope so, right? I sure hope so. And it's going to be good because we're, not because of death and all that being gone, which is good, but it's going to be good because who's there? God is there. He's going to dwell with us. And we're going to dwell in His presence. Think, church, listen to me. 
What is it going to be like to dwell in the very presence of God for all eternity? Notice in verse 11, John describes the holiness by adding, having the glory of God. Come, I want to show you the bride. He takes and shows him a city and he gives him this figurative language and he says, this place, these people, they have the glory of God which refers to God's own presence among His people. And see, in verse 11, the glory seems to have a major result on the people, on the church. John compares the holiness and glory of God's city and people as being what? Radiant, like a rare jewel, like crystal clear jasper. Now, do I think... We're going to be jewels? No. But it's symbolic language. You, you think of a rare jewel like crystal clear jasper. How beautiful that is. It's telling you what you're going to be like in heaven. Beautiful. We look in the mirror now and we go, mm. Right? God dwelling with His people has made them holy, has made them lovely and beautiful beyond anything they can think of. One day will God have so perfected and beautified us that His image will be reflected without distortion in us. Did you hear that? We are all what? Image bearers. Created the image of God, but that image has been distorted because of the fall. Jesus comes and when He saves us, that's the beginning of that process of renewing that image in us. But one day in heaven, that image will be restored to a completion and God will so have perfected and beautified us that His image will be reflected in us and there will be no distortion whatsoever. Now listen, you're not going to be God. Don't go home telling people that the preacher said I'd be God. But God's image is going to dwell in you, perfected, that you're going to be the most beautiful, glorious thing there is. You and all the millions that are there with you. How how are we to look at this? How how, how do we apply this? The the condemning of the prostitute back in chapter 17 and the bride here in chapter 21 warns us that all of history is summed up by two women in Revelation. Did you see that? There's two women in Revelation, right? The world, the prostitute, the bride, the wife of the lamb. You will either belong to the prostitute doomed to a lake of fire and hell or you will belong to the bride of Jesus who enters the new heaven and the new earth by a holiness that begins in you now. Do you see that? You belong to one of the two. One doomed to an eternity in hell. The other one destined for an eternity in the presence of God. If you are a professing Christian, listen to me. can't get over the fact of what this passage was telling me this week, what it's going to be like for me dwelling in God's presence. How, how glorified I'm going to be. You wonder why the Bible says we need glorified bodies? Because these old bodies couldn't stand all the glory we're going to experience in heaven. It just couldn't stand it. We've got to have glorified bodies in order to take on all this. And I, I've been thinking about this week. I just can't get my mind wrapped. Being in God's presence, His glory in me, undistorted, perfected. If you are a professing Christian, this life is about preparing for the new heavens and the new earth. 
A primary task of you, of you for you in this life is the pursuit of holiness. Professing Christian, you are to be totally different from everyone who is not a Christian. And your lifestyle is to reflect the difference in holy living. That's what I take away from this to apply this. If that's what I'm going to be like there, then what should I be like here? And can I tell you, the Bible is clear. How you live now? Are you listening? Wake up for a second. Go back to sleep after I say this. How you live now affects how you will live in eternity. You can't live any way you want to now thinking it doesn't affect your life then. It does. This tells me as a professing Christian, my life now is about pursuing holiness. Will I ever get there? This is no. But I'm to pursue that because the holiness of God is upon my life. I'm to pursue that. Notice in verses 12 through 14 here, the design of the city. Remember our text is not giving a literal description of our eternal dwelling place. Instead, what we have is a figurative description of ourselves and what life will be like for us as God's people in this eternal state. So what does the design of this figurative city teach us about God's people? Two things. God's people will be eternally secure. God's people will be eternally secure. John tells us that the city has a massive high wall. You and I read things in the Bible and we kind of just like, what? Okay, a massive high wall. But you have to put yourself, a lot of the times, most of the time in the place of the original readers. If you were one of the original readers and you heard this massive high wall, in the ancient world a wall protected the city, What? From its enemies. So this high wall symbolizes the city's safety from all its enemies. Nothing will ever get into that city. You're eternally secure. Not that anything could get into that city because only what is good and holy is all existing. God walks everything away, but it's telling you. I read this and I go. I won't have to worry about what I worry about now anymore. The wall also has 12 gates. Let me stop here. I've told you from the beginning. If we turned over every stone in Revelation, it would take us years to make it through. And I'm just trying to give you the most important thing. Something that will feed your soul. The wall has 12 gates. The function of a gate... Does what? And you, we're talking about a city. It allows what? Entry. It allows entry. Verse 13 tells us there are three gates on the east, on the north, on the south, and the west. That's a lot of gates, right? For a lot of what? Entry. These 12 gates show the abundant invitation of all people to come to this city through faith in Jesus. There's an abundance of people who are going to be there. You can be one of those people. And in Luke chapter 13, I find something very interesting. Luke chapter 13, verse 29. Jesus says this, And they shall come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down 
in the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus He was pointing to this. They're going to come from everywhere. In all directions, all peoples. In verse 12, each gate has an angel to guard it. That's another symbol of security. Think back to the book of Genesis. What happened after Adam and Eve disobeyed God? Kicked them out, right? Everybody remember that. They got kicked out of the garden. What did God do when He kicked them out of the garden? He put an angel at the entrance of the garden, right? Why? To protect it, right? Keep anybody from getting in. But listen, He did so to keep humans from coming back into the garden and eating of the tree of life. You're like, well, what's the big deal? If you eat from the tree of life, eating from the tree of life would have doomed you to an eternal state of sin. If they had come back into that garden and ate from that tree, they would have been eternally in sin forever and ever and ever. No opportunity of ever escaping that. And God put an angel there to protect them from going back in. Therefore, God in His mercy kept them out of the garden once they were cast out. After God makes all things new in chapter 21, an angel guard will be stationed to keep humans from ever not partaking. And it means that God's fellowship with His people will be eternally secure. God's new creation will not suffer the same fall as the first creation did. I remember when I first went to seminary, that was one of the questions that was in my mind. Have you ever thought of this? If it could happen one time, can it happen again? You ever thought of that? If the fall could happen once, can it happen again? When I read this, no. God's new creation will not suffer the same fall as the first creation did. Think about it. And give glory to God. Never again will this ever happen. Life with God will be eternally protected by God. Verse 12. On the gates are the names of 12 tribes of Israel. The number 12, again, is symbolic. They represent the Old Testament people of God. They are there. The promise that Israel will be restored has been fulfilled in the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. They are there. There's a promise to the nation of Israel that they will be restored. And here in Revelation, we see that promise fulfilled. Skip to there, to, to verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Again, 12 being symbolic. The wall has 12 foundations. Written on the foundations are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Jesus chose what? 12 apostles. The twelve apostles represent the entirety of New Testament believers. This is a way of saying that all of God's redeemed people, from Old Testament, New Testament, they're there. You ever been asked the question or wondered, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved if Jesus hadn't come yet? By faith, the same way you do. They believed that the Messiah was coming the way you and I look back and believe that He's come. By faith, they will be there. They're not two peoples of God, Israel and the church, but there's one people. Eternal life with God will be the inheritance of both believing Jews and, thank God, believing Gentiles from all the nations. And here's what I would say. As a way of applying this, is 
I think I've already said this once, but look ahead to the new heavens and the new earth. That ought to be our constant focus. Look ahead and remember remember that the destination is better than the journey. How many of you have been on vacation? The destination was better than getting there, right? Getting there is like, what are your children doing? Are we there yet? Y'all are laughing. Y'all heard that this week, right? More than once. Are we there yet? The destination is better than the journey. The journey is what? But the destination is what we're looking to. We face trials and disappointments. We face those things by looking forward to what? This time. Dwelling in the presence of God. By trusting in the one who's trustworthy and true. Verse 5 of chapter 21. The things of the world to come. They, they become real to us now. And, and when we live that way, when we reflect now some of the glory of God that will one day radiate from us. Verse 11. Looking to that day. We, we, we read this and we anticipate. We long, we look for that day. We wait for that day. We desire that day. We, we journey in this world knowing that our destination is better than the journey. Look at verses 15 through 21. We see the shape and the measurements of the city. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Here in this verse, the angel speaks to John and he has a measuring rod and he's going to measure this city. And again, we have to stop and think, have we saw this before? This idea of measuring. The idea of measuring symbolizes protection. When we're in chapter 11, verse 1, that's what we said. When we were in chapter 11, verse 1, this measuring symbolizes protection. In chapter 11, verse 1, God gave John a measuring rod and He told him to do what? Measure the temple, right? You remember that? Vaguely. Chapter 11 was a long time ago. I'm just telling you, that's what it was. He was measuring the temple, which symbolized His people. The temple was symbolic of the people of God, and He was measuring. The measurement there, though, listen, was partial. It wasn't a complete, full measurement. It was partial. That, we said, signified God's spiritual protection, but not physical protection. God protects us spiritually. We cannot lose our salvation, but we will suffer physically, right? But here, notice that the entirety of the city is measured, suggesting the entire protection for the people of God. Not a partial, but a complete protection. Notice that verse 16 gives us the shape. It says the city lies four square. It's length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Again, we could sit down here and dissect all these things. But I just want to give you what I think is necessary. It says the city is built four square, having the same length and width. So the city is, is square, right? Those of you who build things, you understand what that means, right? But it's not just a square, it's a, it's a cube. The city is a perfect cube. 
Its length and width and height are what? Equal. The dimensions here, don't miss this, and I've, and I've said this before, when we're studying the book of Revelation, we've got to constantly be doing what? Going where? Old Testament. Old Testament. The dimensions here mirror the dimensions of the most holy place in the tabernacle. It too was a perfect cube. Go back and read it. It was a perfect cube. The city here, our dwelling place, is the heavenly most holy place. But now it's expanded to what? This enormous size. The most holy place was a perfect cube where God's presence dwelt with Israel above the mercy seat. In the Old Testament tabernacle, only the priests could enter into that place and He could only do it once a year. So what's the significance of describing God's people as a cubic city? John is telling us that God will make His immediate dwelling with His people just as He did with Israel in that most holy place. Remember, the... God came and dwelt in that most holy place. He's going to do it with us, just as He did with them. All of God's people, and for sure all of the new heavens and the new earth, will be a holy place. No more. Once a year, one guy going in. Instead, it will be God's presence with all His people every minute of every day, every year, forever and ever. Let that sink in. How long will it be, preacher? It'll be every second, every minute, every day, every week, every month, every year for eternity. Dwelling in God's presence. And we saw what that was like. It's glorious, right? In verses 16 and 17, the angel gives us uh, again the measurements. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Verse 17, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Again, these numbers are figurative. The length, width, and height that John gives is 12,000 stadium. And the height of the wall is 144 cubits. Now, since the number 12 has just appeared, you're looking at those numbers, right? 12,000. When you look at 144, what do you think? 12 times 12. Now, since the number 12 has just appeared to indicate all God's redeemed People from both the Old and New Testament make sense to see these multiples of 12 in the city. And wall size is symbolizing complete, listen, spaciousness and complete protection for the complete number of God's people. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. My Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. Here it is. Heaven is going to be so large, it will contain all the people that God redeems throughout all of history. You won't run out of room. In in John chapter 14, Jesus says, You believe in God, believe in me. There's plenty of room. Come. The city here, which is a place and a people, the city will hold the redeemed, the full number of them, without limitations. You're, You're going, I don't like living in the city. I like living in the country. Don't worry, there's going to be plenty of room. It won't be shoulder to shoulder and hip to hip in heaven. There's going to be plenty of room. There's complete room for the redeemed from every age in God's presence, complete protection to remain there for eternity. 
That's what eternal life will be like for us. 18 through 21. Quickly. Uh, notice the materials. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Uh, if you Google jasper, you can look at it. It's like a quartz stone. It's speckled with all these various colors. The gold here being pure and clear reflects the majesty of God. It radiates with God's glory. That's what that's symbolizing. The city reflects the glory and beauty of God Himself. One commentator said, The pure gold symbolizes the pure, holy, gracious, and radiant character of the fellowship between God and His people. Verse 19 and 20 describe the foundations. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jaston, and the twelfth amethyst. Now, again, there are people who sit down, they'll take every one of those jewels, and man, they dissect it, and it, it's, it gets all kind of weird. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Symbolically, the foundations of the city consist of 12 different kinds of beautiful jewels. And we should probably not read significance into each jewel specifically. They, they simply emphasize the beauty of the city. The description here calls to mind three other places in the Bible. First, it calls to mind the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 12. If you go back and read, the garden also contained precious stones. The new creation will be a garden of Eden-like paradise. It will be paradise restored. Second, the jewels also remind us of the high priest's breastplate in Exodus chapter 28. The breastplate, if you'll remember... We read through Exodus on Wednesday nights. That breastplate contained what? Anybody want to take a guess? Twelve stones. There are twelve stones mentioned here in the foundation. The twelve stones and the high priest uh, breastplate symbolized the, the people of Israel whom the high priest would represent before the Lord in His immediate presence. All who are in the city, that is all who make up the people of God, will dwell in God's immediate presence in the new creation. We will have that kind of access to the Lord Jesus that they had with the high priest in the Old Testament. And third, my most favorite, there's Isaiah's description of the future new heavens and the new earth in chapter 54, verses 11 through 14. Here he says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Ever been there? Behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Antimony is this shiny silver. And lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate. Your gates of carbuncle. That's a red gemstone. And all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, and you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall 
not come near you. Did you hear the results of living in this place in God's presence? All your sons will be taught by the Lord. The well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness you will be established and you will be far from oppression. Fear or terror will not come near you. Verse 21 describes the gates. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Each gate of the city is made of a single pearl. And the streets are of gold. Comparable to transparent glass. These symbols communicate the perfection again of the new heavens and the new earth. The glory of God in it and the purity of His people. That's what this is reflective of. The glory of God and how pure and how holy you will be. John's vision, for us to apply this, even though it's symbolic, John's division, vision excuse me, depicts for the church, the Christian, a real place for us to dwell. And that among us in the place where God intends to dwell in all His glory. You remember the picture that Isaiah got of God in Isaiah chapter 6? The glory of God and the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. And the, the, the brightness of God's glory. You will dwell in God's presence in His full glory one day. The truth for us to understand today is that we, through faith in Jesus, we have we've been accepted as righteous. We have God living in us now through the Holy Spirit. As He lives in us, He's working in us in order to one day present the church to Jesus. You have the Spirit of God living in you now. The presence of God dwells in you now. But you're where? In a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. One day that will not be the case. You will dwell in the very presence of God, fully holy, being exposed to God's glory for all eternity. What does that do for your mind sitting here today? What will that do for your mind tomorrow morning when you get up? One day, perfect holiness in the presence of God. Does that ever enter your mind? Or are we guilty of being preoccupied with the business of our daily lives to ever think about this? How much time do you, do I, Christian, give to thinking about your eternal home? Let me challenge you this week. Just take five minutes... How many of y'all got five minutes? You got it, all right? Five minutes and just sit down and say, God, I just want to focus on eternity for just five minutes. I heard what the preacher said. I heard what your word said. Help me to think about what heaven's going to be like. Just give God five minutes. How much time do you, Christian, give to thinking about that? Some of us are thinking right now, I wish we'd hurry up and get out of here. I got better things to do. Instead of hearing about the glory of heaven. This passage, among others, reminds us that a day is coming when everything we've worked for in this life will be gone. 
Taking this text seriously means, Christian, you'll seize time away from worldly pursuits in order to devote some time to your walk with God. Start praying, praying, and ask the Lord, Lord, be working in me to make me a radiant jewel, like verse 11 says, and do just a bit more today so I can shine for your glory now. Alright, verses 22 through 27. These will go quick. The church has a very bright future. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Lamb. Excuse me. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It says that there's no need for a distinct, separate temple in the city. The reason, it tells us, for its temple is the Lord God, the, uh, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Old Testament temple and the tabernacle were places where God, that's where He dwelt with His people, right? Both of those, remember, the temple and the tabernacle put degrees of separation between unholy people and a holy God. In the new heavens and the new earth, there is no separation. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, they are the temple. In other words, the city will contain God's, again, His immediate presence. The people of God dwell in God's presence. He dwells in them and among them. Verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. No sun, no moon. Now, are we to think in the new heavens and the new earth that there's actually no sun and no moon? I don't think so. John is trying to paint a picture in which Jesus rules the horizon in every direction. The glory of the Lord is everywhere. It's as if you didn't need a sun or a moon. Jesus is enough. He will rule in every direction. In verses 24 through 26, the city will contain the worshiping nations. And that's the point of saying they will bring their glory and honor into it. Verse 24 says, By its light, that's talking about the glory of God, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The redeemed of all nations are there. The promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis that he would be the father of many nations, here it is. That promise has been fulfilled. Verse 25, And its gates will never shut by day. The fact that its figurative gates will never be closed tells us that God's people from every nation will have perfect access to Him and perfect safety in His presence. And there will be no night there. That it will never be night means that God's glory will shine on His people without pause and without end. Never will it stop. Verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Worshippers from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and every ethnicity, praising and enjoying God in perfect peace forever. That's what God's people are going to look like. Believers from Iraq, and Iran, and Nigeria, and Maldives, and Japan, Mexico, the United States, unreached people groups, all will be there. Verse 27. But. That is a big word. But. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. 
nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That verse kind of should catch our attention. Isaiah, in chapter 52, verse 1 says that no one who is uncircumcised, he's talking about the spiritual heart or unclean, will enter the city of God. The prophet Joel, in chapter 3, verse 17, also promises in the day of the Lord, the new heavens and the earth, it will be holy and strangers will not enter that city. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be in this place. They will enter the gates of the city because they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 7, verse 14 in Revelation. Here's what verse 27 is telling us. This place, this new heavens and new earth, God's enemies, those who don't trust in His Son, those who refuse to repent of their sin, the unholy, they won't be there. Those who refuse to run from the harlot and run to be the bride of Christ, they won't get to be in this place. The gates of the city are opened wide and they're never shut to all who trust in Jesus. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And here's the question. Will you enter those gates with thanksgiving and with praise when that day comes? Or will you be left outside with the unclean things in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? John inspired by the Holy Spirit. Listen, John tries to describe the indescribable for us. The most important aspect of the new heavens and the new earth is not what we will do, but whom we will see. The greatest joy in the new heaven and the new earth will be fellowship with God. Every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, every year, for all eternity. John's focus is not on seeing and enjoying one another, even though that will happen. He fixes our attention on the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth. And the new heavens and the new earth is beautiful because Jesus is there. If our hearts don't get excited at the hope of seeing Jesus, we probably need to get before God and say, Why? If you never contemplate, if you never sit and think, what will it be like to be in the presence of God? We just need to get before God and ask, why do I not think about that? Holiness is an absolute necessity for heaven. In a holy city, the unholy will not enter there. No one ever qualified for heaven because of their holy life, but no one ever went to heaven without a holy life. The world tells us a lie that holiness will be the end of your happiness. You ever had anybody tell you that? You become a Christian, you you won't be happy the rest of your life. But our passage is telling us that we could never be happy in heaven without holiness. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, Without holiness no one shall see the Lord. 
And here's what I would say. Holiness. The holiness of Jesus applied to your life at salvation is what's required to enter this city. A holy, transformed, changed life. Not a perfect life here, but the holiness of God upon your life having transformed your life. It says in Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And here's what I would say. Don't think that heaven can be secured by signing a card or making a decision or having an experience or praying a prayer or being baptized or having your name on the church roll and then living however you please. The Bible says you don't get in. Without holiness, you will not get in. A profession of faith, a spiritual experience, a moment of commitment in your past is no basis for confidence that you will find a welcome into the heaven. If you want to belong in this holy city, you must be a holy Christian. There are no other citizens in this city. And the way you become holy is by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. Doing so applies to your life His righteousness. His holiness. And being a holy Christian also means that after trusting in Jesus, you live a life of continuous repentance and following Jesus. See, repentance doesn't happen on that one day when you get saved. It's every single day of our lives. Pursuing holiness, pursuing Jesus, and the Bible is clear. That's the ones who get into this city. Let's pray.